Mark Zuckerberg comes to the show and brings the guest Melinda Gates. <laughs> and they come back and they are wonderful. They are so nice. And I meet Melinda Gates and I'm thinking, I just played her husband in a, you know, almost a Broadway show. And I thought, should I say something to her? And then I said, I've got to. Welcome to Fort Knox. I'm John Fort and Happy New Year. If you saw the Tony-dominating musical Hamilton on Broadway in 2016, chances are you saw Rory O'Malley light up the stage as King George III. I'll admit to being a bit of a Hamill fan myself, having binged on the soundtrack since late spring. And for my birthday, my wife surprised me with tickets to the show, and I've got to tell you, just from listening to the soundtrack, I wasn't prepared for the show-stealing presence that O'Malley brought to a very unique role. So I was thrilled to get a chance to interview Rory for Fort Knox. This podcast brings together rich ideas and powerful people and hopefully provides some inspiration for you to achieve your goals, which is an especially fitting theme for New Year's. O'Malley offers all of that. In our conversation, he brings a no-frills assessment of life as a Broadway actor, his prescription for achieving your goals no matter what your career, and a surprising take on why his Tony-nominated performance as Elder McKinley in the Book of Mormon turned out to be a liberating experience. You can also check out Rory's own podcast, Living the Dream with Rory O'Malley, which is on iTunes, of course. This podcast, Fort Knox, starts off a little bit different. I sent a driver to pick Rory up in Manhattan and bring him to CNBC headquarters in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, where we recorded this. As they say, hilarity ensued. I don't know. Like, I just got the feeling that he was like, well, this isn't the usual guy who comes in to talk about the Dow. Um, and he asked me why I was coming. And, and I said, I'm an actor. And he said, oh, what are, you do, what are you in? And I said, I'm in Hamilton. And he said, oh, is that about that family in New Jersey? <laughs> And I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know what family in... Now, granted, I just moved to New Jersey three years ago. Right. But Sam must be deep in New Jersey. Yeah, you don't know about the famous Hamilton, New (laughs) Jersey Jersey Hamiltons. Yeah. Um, But, no, he said that, and then he said, well, what channel is it on? (laughs) And I I got so excited because (laughs) this man has never heard of Hamilton on Broadway, and... I, it was almost like I had discovered a, a civilization that has been untarnished by pop culture. It so was, you were was probably great. torn between having to explain to him while, why right. Hamilton really is a thing right. or just actually enjoy a ride in peace for once, somebody not asking you tons of questions. Right. About. You do have that moment where you're like, do I tell someone that I'm in Hamilton or that I'm doing, or that I'm an actor? in general because people are are wonderful and they have a lot of questions when you are when you do something like you're an actor or you're in Hamilton and I made the choice I liked Sam and I said hey I'm in Hamilton and we'll see where we go and he <laughs> took the turn that I did not see coming he had never heard of it I would not have seen that coming it was great it was now, great I had the pleasure just days ago uh, two days after my birthday of Seeing Hamilton, yeah. seeing you in Hamilton. This was my wife's big birthday gift Aww. to me because she knows I 
you know, not only have I been listening to the soundtrack for months and months, but then right. I read Ron Chernow's biography on George Washington. Right. Didn't want to read Hamilton because sure. you know, I was into So go a little to the side. Sure. Then a biography on Thomas Jefferson because I kind of wasn't liking him right. after. Yeah. All, and so, I mean, it's just overwhelming the amount of history and then the artistry that's brought to the production. I mean, you've done a lot of stuff. Book of Mormon, right. Tony nominated yeah. for that. You've done a lot of TV also. How is Hamilton different and, and how did it come to be? Well, uh, you know, it's a very different show, first and foremost, because nothing like it has ever been written. You know, it's, it's literally taken the art form that I've dedicated my life to and love so much and brought it to a new height, to a place that it's not just that we never thought it could go there, it's that we didn't know it was capable of doing that. Now and explain, because you're, you actually know Broadway and you know musicals, so is it the hip-hop component of it, the fact that almost the entire show is rapped and sung? I think that it is, yes, but I think that it's the fact that the entire show is, is pretty much uh, in rap, hip-hop, or song, and my mom doesn't notice. <laughs> that, to me, is why the show is so successful, is that my mom from Cleveland, Ohio, can show up, and she said she was worried about all that rap, if she was going <laughs> to understand anything, but she said, I think they were singing. I said, yes, they were. <laughs> you know, she didn't. She doesn't know exactly what hip hop is, yeah. and I think that that's what the the great power of the show is. Is that there's so many different entry points for different people. When I saw it, I said, "This is the greatest show ever. I love it. I don't know if everybody else is going to love it because I think this show was made for me." When did the, you see it? I saw it at the Public Theater downtown before it opened, and. Uh, I said, well, that's the greatest thing ever written. And if I get to be a part of this in any way in my lifetime, I will be so grateful. You were thinking that even then? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm an actor. You're always okay. looking for right. some, something. <laughs> on. When you see a show, you're like, all right, where's the eventual part I could audition for? And, of course, Brian Darcy James, who uh, originated the role downtown. Of King was, George yes, the third. He was absolutely a genius, absolutely. He is. I've seen him perform so many times, and he's spectacular uh, as an actor. And um, I was living in Los Angeles, and I went out and and uh, got the cast recording when it came out, and like binged it and listened to it every single day. When I was going on a run or a hike, I was listening to my shot. You know, <laughs> I was a fan of the show before I was a part of it at all. I was a huge, huge fan. And I also went to college with Leslie Odom Jr. Oh. He was my classmate. Oh, wow. Yes. At? At Carnegie Mellon University. Huh. Yes. Yes. And so, so I'm starting to see at least a connection here. But getting into the show must have been a, a long shot because you're a white guy. Yeah. And so, you know, a white guy getting into Hamilton is right. like a black guy getting into anything else, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's only a couple of spots for you. Yes. Yes. No, it's 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 absolutely true. Is well, I think that, you know, w with this role, 
they are look always looking for the whitest guy, and that is my <laughs> basically. If I if there's any kind of typecasting for me, it's the whitest person. So you ever said I was in Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. From Ohio, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it that that's definitely. Um, my thing is being <laughs> the whitest person ever, um, but yeah, it, it was it was crazy. And what's funny, it, this is the the story. I don't know if you know the full story of how I got into Hamilton. I don't. But it's I think CNBC listeners or or, or watchers would be very interested in this. And I haven't told this story yet fully, the part that you will really be interested in. Um, so I was living in Los Angeles, and I was sitting in a Starbucks with. Again, I, I drink a lot of coffee and a lot right. of Starbucks, as, as I told you before. Um, I was sitting there with Josh Gad, my buddy, who I also went to Carnegie Mellon with. Oh, wow. Was, we were in the same class, Leslie and, and Josh in and In Book of Mormon. We were in Book of Mormon together. Um, and Did you guys all do shows together at Carnegie yeah. Mellon? Yeah, we were in classes together. We did shows together. At, you know, We were at, from 18 to 22 every single day it, doing acting classes and, and I mean, with Leslie Odom Jr. too? Yeah, Man, that, they should yeah. be like a, a TV series like on you guys um, in college. That would be, that'd be Sounds awesome. great. They'll cast younger people. Great. <laughs> Thanks, John. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and Katie Mixon was in our class as well, who has a TV show on ABC called American Housewife, and she's insanely talented. She was on Mike and Molly for years. and Yeah, no, we had a, we had a good group of, of people, and Carnegie Mellon really has um, <clears throat> a great program, not just... Not just engineers. Not just engineers. I wouldn't have. It's funny. All the people it. who are engineers don't realize how great the drama school is, and all the drama people have no idea what engineering is. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's they build a, the sets. What are they? Right. Yeah. yeah. They have no idea. But uh, no, they, it's it's a great school because of that. Because there's such diversity in in what they teach and and the kinds of people that are on campus. Hmm. So I, I loved going to school there. Um, but anyway, I was sitting in a Starbucks with Josh Gad, and I get this email from my agent saying, oh, there's some Broadway musical that wants you to be in it. Uh, here's an offer for a Broadway part. And this never happens, right? It was not Hamilton. It oh. was called Nerds, the musical. Right. Had you heard about this? It, I, Bill Gates. Bill and, Gates and Steve Jobs. Yeah. They were, it was a, this new musical that was coming to Broadway this last year. And I had heard of it. It had been around for about a decade. And it got a theater. And they were fast-tracking it and getting it into the Long Acre on 48th Street. And this was a direct offer in an email on a Friday. Sitting next to Josh Gad, I said, I don't think this is real. This is very strange. They're asking me to play Bill Gates in a musical. And he said, you have to do it. Go right now. I was like, what? And so I call up my agent over the weekend. I get the material, and I'm going through it. And I go, you know, this is actually really funny. And it was this really, really broad comedy um, that was um, Bill Gates rapping and a lot of fun stuff that... People who follow tech would have gone crazy for. But I, I show up, this is back in February, to New York City. February of? February of last, of this year. Of 2016. Of 2016. Oh, yeah. It's been a crazy year. <laughs> a crazy year. So February 20th, I show up in New York City. My husband has a great job actually working in a, a, a wealth management firm in Santa Monica. I come out here. And so you I, move out? I, yeah. By yourself? 
Yeah. Leave your husband oh, yeah. in Santa Monica. Oh, okay. yeah. He's just thinking the world of me. I'm <laughs> like, I actually moved him out there because I got a TV show, and it lasted 10 episodes, and he got this great job because he's a real person. <laughs> and and uh, so he, we were like, you keep your job. Who knows how long this Broadway show will last? Well, we start rehearsals. Three weeks in, we've learned the entire show. It's the last song before the bows. We're learning the finale, which is the lyric is, live your dreams. And the lead producer walks in and he says, everyone needs to go home immediately. One of our investors dropped out. We will not be opening on Broadway this season. And it was like someone walked in and said that there had been a death. Because it wasn't just, it was very sad. And it was, you know, it was uh, tragic for a lot of people because their dream really was about to come true in terms of making a Broadway debut. So many people in that room. These are all incredibly talented, very young people who are going to have amazing things happen to them. Um, But this was just one of those moments where there was no way to put lipstick on this pig. It was horrible. So what do you say? Because you have been on Broadway before. Like I said, Tony nominated. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a chance for you to say something. Yeah, right? But what do you say, John? I I don't know. (laughs) What do I say? You know what? It's funny. There were... I understand what you're saying because I looked to the stage manager, I looked to the people who have been in my business for decades and decades and decades who knew every in and out of things that had happened. And I looked to them, I said, has this ever happened before? And they said, no. It's it's very abnormal for something like that to happen because a producer has has to put up a lot of money to get everybody in a room. There has to be a lot of money already put into the production. A bond has to be given to the union. There has, there's so many business things that are way above my, my pay grade that have to be in place. And so to get three weeks into a rehearsal when you've paid the theater three weeks of rent, when you've paid for an entire set, when you've paid for a cast, it is, it's shocking. Yeah. I remember a lot of the time in those three weeks thinking, I don't know about this one. But I never was thinking, I don't know if we won't make it to the first preview. I thought, I don't know if we're going to last as long as Book of Mormon. You right. know, like. Which was how long? Which is still going. Yeah. Which, you know. But I, you were in it for. I was in it for two years. Two years. Yeah, yeah. the first okay. two years. Um, but. Anyway, you know, he walks in there, and it, it's it was devastating to so many people, and I, I, I mm. it, it was very sad for me, but to the folks who really had put their heart and soul into it for years, to watch them have to go through that that day was, one it was one of the worst things I've ever experienced yeah. in my career for sure. But you don't um, jump on a plane. Well, and I do. Go back to you do. I do. Oh, oh yeah. So that was March eighth. I'm going to remember this timeline forever. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a good journalist about it. Um, and that was March 8th. And then our director, Casey Hushin, who is a wonderful human being, it was her Broadway debut as, as the director. She's been an associate on a bunch of shows. She said, I think we owe it to ourselves to all come into the room tomorrow and run through the show. 
And that's what we did. It was really difficult, emotional, and there was a lot of tears. But we ran through the show for each other and some friends and the, and the designers and the people who had been working on it for so long so that we could at least see what we'd done, have some closure. And uh, I got on a plane, flew back to L.A. a few days after I packed up my belongings. And, and uh, I remember my husband got me Bruce Springsteen tickets <laughs> and so I got to go see Bruce Springsteen to cheer me up. And uh, two days after getting back to L.A., my agent called and said, Rory, I know that you just had a really hard experience on Broadway, but would you ever consider coming back to Broadway? And I said, oh, I don't know. You know, my heart is just so broken after that experience. And she said, well, what if it's for the king in Hamilton? And I said, I'm at LAX. I'm on the red eye. She said, you need to talk to your husband. I said, no, he'll understand. I'm already there. You were um, already there? I, I literally left like within two days and was, already, and was back in New York City and was working on, on the king with the creative team. So it was crazy. And the reason that that happened is that our um, wonderful casting director, she was, for Hamilton, is the casting director for Nerds. And oh. so she was in the room that day watching that run-through of the show that we had worked on for three weeks. And she said, you know what? Rory would be great in, in Hamilton as the king. And Jonathan Groff had just put in his notice and was going to do a Netflix show. Probably the week before, this show collapsed, and there I was. And within... Um, a few days, I was at the Richard Rogers rehearsing to be the king. Now that's amazing. I don't remember when Hamilton became a pop culture phenomenon. Right. But I'm sure you do. When, when was it more than sort of an indie Broadway circles inside? Thing? When had it exploded into the public consciousness of everybody's got to have Hamilton tickets? How do I get tickets? You know, it's funny because I think I have a unique perspective on that because I wasn't in the show from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the, the show in the original cast, they talk about, and I understand it because of Book of Mormon, about being in a bubble and that you just have to keep your head down and keep doing the show. And you don't really, you know that things around the theater are crazy, but you don't know what people in in Oklahoma are interested in it or not. And I knew that once family members who had no knowledge of Broadway whatsoever were asking me about Hamilton, I thought, wow, this has really worked its way into pop culture and society in a way that Broadway shows just don't usually do. And I think that it was the, the cast recording. When that came out uh, at the end of last year, I believe it was, that kind of is a, a, a cast recording that will go down as something that really changed Broadway history. You know, it's our, I think it's gone platinum at this point. And it really was a chance for everyone in the country to be a part of the show and listen to the show and get, and you know, all of a sudden people wanted to see it, not just listen to it. So I gotta ask, before I, I mean, I wanna get into, you know, your career and and you know how you try to advise young people that maybe it's not exactly what it looks like. Sure, you know, it's great, but 
it's so unique to have a cast recording yeah. that becomes such a huge hit so early in a show's life. Sure. I mean, I know, I can't tell you how many times I listen to every song on that recording, yeah. but I know like inflection on like every line pretty much that everybody says or right. sings. Now, when you're coming in after the cast recording has been recorded, right. how do you start to exist in a show like that that probably a good percentage of the audience feels like if you sing a different note or, or sing it in a slightly different accent, they're going to know, oh, he made an interesting choice there. Right, right. You know, I think that you can't worry about it because I, I think it's freeing. I think that, that it's actually harder for the person who is on the recording because they are supposed to be the robot who does exactly the same thing. For me, I'm liberated the first two notes from that. Hmm. I don't have to keep following along what Jonathan Groff did because if I did, I would be terrible because I'm not a good Jonathan Groff. I'm a better Rory O'Malley playing this king. And so it's it's been interesting to originate a role and that was that was so much fun with Book of Mormon and then getting to step into a role that is insanely fun and that I've got to make my own. But you always are um, borrowing and uh, recreating something that was done by the original actor. Mm. You know, that's why originating a role is what it is, is that it's the first time going on stage. You're the one who figures out what works in front of an audience. And everybody else is a different version of that. And especially with this, I think it's... In, in drama school, we had clown class, where everybody made up their own clown, you know, red noses and all, and yeah. it was this wonderful, fun uh, uh, study of, of creating really goofy characters. And one of my favorite parts of that class was when you traded clowns. So if we made clowns, I would be John's clown, and you would be my clown one day, and you had to learn and observe what that clown was. And it's basically, it's writing this whole world, this character. And I kind of felt that that's what this was, mm -hmm. that that Brian Darcy James, Jonathan Groff, Andrew Reynolds, the three guys who played and, and touched the character of, of the king who wore the crown, they had contributed to, to the clown. And I was just doing my part of, of contributing to this clown and bringing it to... The next person, if that makes sense. You no, know. that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So now, I want to ask. Let's say I'm 12 years old. Okay. And I want to be on Broadway. Yes. And I want you. Rory so you're O'Malley. me when I was 12. Yes. Except, Obsessive. Except now. Okay. Except okay. 2016. I'm 12 now. Right. Right. And I want you to tell me how do I do it? What do I have to? I mean, let's say I've got some talent. What classes do I have to take? What mindset do I do I right. have to have? How much is it going to cost me, or right. is it going to cost me? Do I have to? Where do I have to go? What camps do? What do I do, Rory? Wow, um, it's a hard question because I I think there are lots of ways to get to Broadway. There are people who went to conservatories. There are people who didn't. There are people who didn't go to college at all. There are people who. Um, who went to conservatories in the best schools and are not on Broadway, you know? Um, I would say, knowing what I know now and, and you know, where, where I am, I would say my number one advice to young people is to relax, 
and to chill. Because if you are a People person... People don't do that nowadays. They don't. <laughs> and I think that... So many young people, especially ones who have a dream when they're 12, which is a wonderful blessing, but it's also very demanding on a 12-year-old to have a dream as big as Broadway. Um, that you should be striving for excellence and education and learning and be open to whatever path that journey and education takes you on. Um, on my podcast this week, I have one of our dressers at... Uh, Hamilton, Chris Leary, who is who, who studied dance as a child, went to college for acting, and is now in the wardrobe department and loving every single second of it. And I think that his journey is such a good example for young people because his journey's not over, but he's somebody who didn't close himself off from all the other opportunities and ways to be a part of art and creating. And this business is huge. There are so many different entry points into being a part of Broadway. And if you close your mind off to, I have to just be starring in a Broadway show, or I won't have quote unquote made it, Mm. you're going to really miss out on a lot of opportunities. There are plenty of times where I thought that I wasn't going to be on Broadway. And I opened myself up to starting a nonprofit or working on an, on an organization that I really cared about or doing something else or working, you know, in a side job that I thought was really great. And by letting myself lose that laser beam focus on just that one thing, I, my whole world expanded. And so I really encourage young people to be open to the journey and not just laser beam focus on the one thing. So you implied that when you were 12... Mm-hmm. You wanted to be on Broadway. I did. When did you first figure out that you wanted to be on Broadway? Well, I first figured out that I wanted to be an actor when I was eight years old, and I was cast as St. Joseph in the Christmas pageant at Our Lady of Angels. Now, the director was the second grade teacher, Mrs. Gibbons, who also uh, was my aunt. <laughs> so it's total nepotism. It's always who you know in Helps, this business, yeah, right. even from the beginning. <laughs> But I, I, uh, I was not a lost kid, but it was funny because when I was on that stage at eight years old, I felt like I had been found. I felt like something happened, and I knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I sat my mom, an accountant at the same firm for 41 years, single mom, sat her down, and I said, Mom, don't laugh at me but I know what I want to be for the rest of my life. I want to be an actor. And she didn't laugh. She cried. And she, (laughs) no, she was totally supportive, and she enrolled me in Children's Theater, Beck Center for the Cultural Arts in Lakewood, Ohio. And I went there for 10 years. It's where I met Krista, uh, the producer here at CNBC. Um, Krista Braun? Yes, Krista Braun. And, um, And so that community didn't just give me the tools to be an artist and an actor. It gave me uh, an oasis in, and a place to be myself, to feel safe, and to create, and to be challenged, and friends. I didn't have a lot of friends before I met um, my fellow theater nerds. And, uh, theater nerds are great. They're the best. I did some theater in high school myself. There you go. I could tell. Elementary I could tell, school John. And- yeah. 
I could tell you were one of Junior us. Junior high, I am. <laughs> Did an opera, actually, but this isn't wow. about me. Wow. <laughs> Very nice. Christmas also. I'm all in the night visitors. Oh, nice. Um, so from 8 to 18, community theater. And then Carnegie Mellon. Right. And Leslie Odom Jr. happens to be same class or just yes. there at the... So, you can't get over this, John. Yeah, how does... I can't get over this. Because this is like... <laughs> yeah, same class. We met each other when we were at freshman orientation. What's your first Leslie Odom Jr. memory? Well, he was in Rent on Broadway. So, oh my God, we were all like, well, what's he even doing here? What does he need an education for? You mean for? like at 18 he was in Rent yes. on Broadway? Oh my yes. goodness. I know, uh. I know. So, you know, my, my first memory of Leslie was just being in awe. And... That, you know, I've known that Leslie had this amount of talent and was capable of what he just showed um, Broadway since he was 18. And I, I, I mean that. You know, sometimes you can, somebody can, like, grow and you're like, oh, my gosh, I never knew that they had that in them. Well, that's not true with Leslie. Like, Leslie has always been astounding, and it just took the right part to match his talent. And, boy, did those two things ma match in the right time. Interesting. And so, so what did you pick up for your craft at Carnegie Mellon that you hadn't gotten earlier on? And, and tell me how that led to whatever it was that you did next as soon as you got out. Uh, stamina. I think that the, the amount of work that you're given at Carnegie Mellon is overwhelming. And... You are constantly in class, building sets, memorizing the project for uh, your next show. You are always working so much, and it feels daunting. And then you get out of school, and your work is at a restaurant. Your work is at uh, many different side jobs. And I feel like Carnegie Mellon prepared me and gave me the tools, not just to be a good actor, but to be a professional. And meaning? Meaning that I was more equipped for the business side of the business than I think a lot of other paths would have made me. And how know. did Carnegie Mellon prepare you for that? Um, brought in a lot of professionals to talk to us about the business. Um, tried to be as, and, you know, and really the best education is just being out there. You can't really teach everything until you just have the cold water thrown on you. Um, but I think that it, they have a wonderful network of support with other Carnegie Mellon students, recent graduates talking, and, and uh, you know, there's still alumni associations on, on both coasts that are very active and supportive. I think they call them the Carnegie Mellon Mafia in our business <laughs> sometimes. Um, it's, it's, it's a great school, but it's, a, it's an even better support system once you leave, and my classmates. I learned most of what I needed from Leslie Odom and Josh Gad, Katie Mixon, and the other wonderful members of my class. So what's your first big break, if it can be turned, termed that way? Sure. Well, um, I was, I, I had, uh, I worked for the late, great Mr. Gary Marshall for years out mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. I did Happy Days the Musical for him at playing Richie Cunningham. I'm yeah. Richie Cunningham. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I hope you can see it. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in my younger days, especially. 
But um, I worked for him for years, and it was one of the greatest pleasures of my life. And I'll always try to be like Gary Marshall. He was just a fantastic human being, and uh, made made everyone uh, a family. He was just wonderful. So I worked for him for years out in Los Angeles, and then on the East Coast. And uh, but I worked a lot of side jobs, overnight shifts at hotels, serving. Uh, but the best job I had, and this is absolutely true, and the one my mom is probably still most proud of, <laughs> is I worked at BlackRock Financial for three years. Three years? Three years as a temp. And I worked for their human resources department. And um, it was Why it was, was that amazing. the best? Well, one, they, they were just really good to me in terms of being able to go to auditions. And I got that job, and a month later I got my Broadway debut, which was the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And I realized how good of a job BlackRock was, so I kept it while I was doing Spelling Bee. So I would do the show at night and come to work at BlackRock during the day. And, of course, I had to miss a lot of work at BlackRock, but they were like, we'll work around this, we'll figure it out. And I think that they really brought in a lot of actors into that human resources department. And I think Carnegie Mellon on my resume didn't hurt. <laughs> right, right. Um, but it's funny because I would you know, have to work with a lot of first-year analysts. And some, a lot of them were from Carnegie Mellon, not the drama department. And when they would find out that I went to Carnegie Mellon, they thought this is their in for their interview. <laughs> and they would say, you know, oh, you know, can I get your email? And my email <laughs> at BlackRock was temp. HR two. I wasn't even one. So I was too embarrassed to give them my email at BlackRock. So I would give them my um, AOL account, which at the time was Roar Dog 1999. Uh, and I remember very clearly having to spell out Roar Dog for a Carnegie Mellon engineering student, which is one of the low points of my life. But it was such a great experience because I went to Broadway and was there for five months, and then I needed a job, and BlackRock was still there for me. And um, I was able to work there for years. Many of the BlackRock people have come to uh, see me in, in Broadway shows. I just did a solo show at 54 Below, and one of the people I worked with there came. It's just been, I can't tell you how much it means to an actor to find a supportive side job, a, you know, a, a supportive job. Uh, that really finds ways to take your talents and make use of them and also supports what your future endeavors are. And it, it allowed me to give fully to, to them. And I was working like 50-hour weeks at, at some point, but um, my mom's still most proud of that, the accountant <laughs> in her. So, but I was sitting at my desk at BlackRock when I got a call from my agent saying that the South Park guys and Bobby Lopez had written a new musical and did I want to be a part of the first reading ever done of it and I just dropped my phone and I told the people in the office I can't be here next week <laughs> and that was so that's how that's how Book of Mormon that's how Book of Mormon happened. same agent uh no okay uh, I won't I won't go into that um but okay Book of Mormon I'm no Broadway buff like historian right but the level of irreverence Right. In Book of Mormon, it's like South Park level irreverence 
but in a Broadway show. Right. What did you think when you went to that reading? You know, it's funny because Bobby Lopez, the you know now Oscar-winning uh, Bobby Lopez who wrote Frozen and, and wrote Avenue Q, uh, you know, he called my cell phone. And uh, I was shocked that Bobby Lopez is calling me, and it was so exciting. And he said, um, we're doing this reading. I'm so glad you're doing it. Uh, there's a couple of songs that we want the cast to know what they are before they agree to do it, which was so nice because I think they really were scared that actors wouldn't say these things. Right. And the songs that he repeated to me like weren't even songs that I was going to be singing. They were, you know... Hasidi Gibbway and, and you know a lot <laughs> right. and so you know uh -huh. the translation of that right. I'll let your listeners look that up yeah they can look it up but um, he basically said the translation of that and what the song was and why they were doing it and I was like uh, and you and Matt Stone and Trey Parker wrote it and he was like yeah I was like I'm in like you're <laughs> all genius so um, I knew that it was going to be phenomenal and it was definitely like overwhelming and lots of people told us that it would not open on Broadway that it was hysterical but you know that nobody would put money into it and um, and I, you know I kind of believed them I was like well I don't know what do I know I'm just working at BlackRock Financial and I remember you know just being like this is amazing it has to happen like it's so smart and funny and uh, it was a three-year process of, it wasn't like... Three years three from years when you from, got the call to when yes. it actually... Opened on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Which is very fast for a Broadway show. Really? People think that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Hamilton took Lynn seven years. I mean, it's Hamilton, but really... That's from like when he started writing it, right? Right, I mean, right. But I mean, when you do that reading, there was probably like maybe seven or eight songs written of Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. So it was the first time they were hearing it out loud. And like I said, I think they were just trying to see if actors would say these things. <laughs> How and, much did it change? Um, I would say that I've been involved with a lot of readings and, and new shows that there were significant changes, but it was pretty much the show that they envisioned from the beginning. And I think that if you set out to write a show like Book of Mormon, you know what you want to do, and you're not like just trying to see what sells or what's going to please people. They know what they want to say when they start writing, and um, it just kept getting better. And that's not always the case when you're <laughs> writing new things. Sometimes it takes you know left turns into nowhere, uh, but uh, it was an amazing experience for me. I started out just part one of the Mormons, Mormons in the ensemble, and. By the end of the first reading, they said, the next time we want you to be this character who is running the mission when they get to Uganda. And then the next time I had a song, turn it off. And the next time I had a song in the second act, I am Africa. And it turned into this role. And over that three-year period, working with some of the greatest minds and, and uh, satirical writers of our life, uh, it was certainly one of the greatest creative experiences that I'll ever have. So I'm pulling out a few nuggets here. You're talking about being open and mm -hmm. not 
looking straight at the Broadway dream as being right. it for somebody sure. who, who maybe wants to do that. And it's probably relevant to anybody who wants to do anything. Right. You're, you're talking about the preparation that you got at Carnegie Mellon to think not just about, narrowly about the craft, but about the business side of it, about all the other you know, tasks that come into making the show happen. You've talked about uh, the importance of having um, work that helps you to do the, the main thing that you're passionate about. Talk to me about how Hamilton, being in the cast for, gosh, what's it been now? Uh, Nine eight months. months? Nine, Nine months? Yeah. How has that changed your career, your outlook, the, the incoming calls? Are they different? Besides the people hitting you up for tickets. Uh, <laughs> it drowns out everything else. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it has definitely changed me. I think that it's um, on a personal level, it's given me more confidence, hmm. um, which my husband would be like, "Oh, great!" Yeah. <laughs> uh, you seem like a pretty humble guy. Yeah. Well, I, I think that I think that I'm from Ohio. I'm an Irish Catholic, and I'm always like with Mormon. I thought this is as great as it gets. I'm going to enjoy every second of this. And whatever else happens in life, in my career. So you felt that way going in? Absolutely. Well, I felt that way while Book of Mormon was happening. Yeah, while it was. So, so when it was over, right? was that It weird? was, oh was it? yeah, yeah. Look, the, the, greatest, there, the greatest thing for me about being in Hamilton is that I've already done the greatest thing I'll ever do. <laughs> and so getting to be in Hamilton has no pressure around that. Like... People always like, would always say when I would tell them Book of Mormon is the greatest experience I'll ever have professionally. They'd say, no, great things are coming. And I'd say, oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm telling you that this is the greatest thing Oh, they'd say it like, be- no. Yeah, like, don't Like you worry, had just said, honey. your life is over. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. like, no, no. I, no like, so for you, it was liberating. You didn't feel like you got to top it. No, exactly. Like, it's, it's not a bad thing to know when your dream comes true. It's not when it's fully realized. You know, yes, you have to dream bigger. Yes, you have to. But for me, that's, I'm going to have a baby one day. You know, like, I'm not going to have a baby thinking, well, oof, I wish I could have had that one time or something like that. And that is a gift. It's not, it's not how am I going to top Broadway experience of Book of Mormon. no. So to have Hamilton come along, where I know all the pressure that can come along with a a hit and feel absolutely none of it, to just walk in and be like, this is a wonderful job, and it's a part of Broadway history, and it is absolutely a gift in every way. And to get to to see it that way, um, because I had the Book of Mormon experience, Hmm. and because I don't have any of that pressure of what does this mean, and what am I going to have to do with this, it's amazing. Um, How do you stay hungry but be satisfied at the same time? It's a very difficult thing. And Which it's side? Ca- being satisfied or staying hungry? Being satisfied. Um, I, I think that you have to control your hunger. You, you don't get to being an actor without being, having an out-of-control ambition. Mm. You have to maintain it to be happy, and I did have to make a decision 
in my mid-20s if I wanted to be, if it was more important to me to be happy or working as an actor. And I know that those two things don't have to be one or the other, but you do have to decide what's more important. And when you say be happy, mm -hmm. do you mean get married? Yeah. Plan on having a family? Yes. Be nice to people? Yes. Have perspective rather than decide that you're gonna do everything you possibly can to get every single opportunity? Yes. I think that I, I started to realize that there were people around me who had uh, much less career-wise and were way happier. And there were people around me who had way more and were much less happy. Hmm. And they had family and all of these other amazing things. And I realized that um, you kind of uh, bow down before the god of your dream. A lot of us do in, in everything that we do. And, and when you have something that is so specific, like being on Broadway, which is why I say like kids shouldn't just focus on that one thing, it is, it's very difficult. It's not just difficult because you have to be talented. It's difficult because roles and opportunities just don't come around so often. So you have to decide how to be happy today without that role. And for the last 10 years, really, after my mid-20s, you know, and and since I was on Broadway in that first time and, and it wasn't there and I was black at, at BlackRock Financial, I realized that it was going to be much more beneficial to me to learn the skill of living in the in between rather than the highs and the lows. Hmm. Um, and that just suits me. I, I, I enjoy living there. Now, when you first started on Hamilton, your dressing room spot was right next to Lynn manuel Miranda. Right, yeah. Uh, You've, you've been close to people, you know, we talked about uh, Book of Mormon, who are, who are starting something, who have conceived of an idea that then bursts forth right. onto the stage. Where, where is Lynn going to be <laughs> when the history of Broadway is written? Because, yeah. I mean, not only did he write it and stage, I mean, he, he played the lead role. Right. He, I mean, it doesn't seem possible, right? I mean, when, surely <laughs> I mean, this has happened before, but I no, have no. It's, it, has it's, it? Okay, I mean, it has happened before. People have have done this, but not in a way that you're going to remember forever. Yeah, like, do you know who? Because I'm not. Again, I'm not a. It's so funny. I was just. I just did a a, a benefit for Joel Gray and. There was this man, Anthony Newley, who wrote Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, and he starred in it, and he wrote it. I think he directed it, too. Um, there are a lot of very incredibly talented people on Broadway, um, and, there, and there always have been. And there's a lot of writers who can, who can sing, um, who are really wonderful performers, but there aren't that many who could do what Lynn did on a stage. Yeah. It's 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 pretty remarkable to me. And not only do it but do it with such enthusiasm and I don't know, I was next to him for almost 4 months. And it was the last 4 months of his run in a show that is very demanding. I did not hear that man complain 
once. Okay, this is, I, I got to add, I meant Not to once. ask. It was I mean, annoying. <laughs> for us in the audience, it's like a singular experience. Or if right. you're Carl Quintanilla, who co-anchors with me on, on Squawk Alley. Yeah, yeah. I think he's seen it six times, so it's not exactly singular. But oh, right. He's like one of a handful no, he, of I times. I think he's there. in the cast. <laughs> he should be by now. Yeah. But for you guys, I mean, you have literally done this show more than 100 times, right? Almost 300. Almost 300 just since, times. Yeah, just since yeah, I got there nine months ago. How hard is that? Because not only must it be mentally demanding mm-hmm. to be playing this character who's having this experience for the one and only time. Right. But you got a voice to take care mm-hmm. of, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there must be all kinds of limits that you got to observe. You've got to, I mean, people must get on your nerves every once in a while. How do you, how do you maintain through that many days and weeks end to end of right. performing? Well, I mean, obviously with this show, I have very little stage time compared to everybody else, so I can never complain about um, being too tired. Uh, though, you know, 300 shows in, I don't really care how much time you're on stage, you can go crazy. That's definitely the biggest challenge on Broadway. And certainly I felt it with Book of Mormon in those two years. I did the show 800 times. And I was in, you know, 17 costume changes, um, three different characters, almost every other song I was either dancing or singing in. So it was way, way, way more taxing. And I would say the biggest challenge to every Broadway performer is not going crazy because of the schedule and keeping your stamina and your health going. It's not about learning how to play the character because you do that pretty much right off the bat in rehearsal. It's about maintaining it so that those people who are coming at your 257th show are seeing it for the first time and they feel like you've never done it before. Do you have to change something in order to do that? Because I imagine if you say or do the same thing over and over again, wouldn't you numb out eventually and just kind of like you're driving and you for that's exactly what the the example i use it's like when you drive home you pull in the driveway and you think oh my god how did i get here right i don't i hope i didn't kill someone you know that that real fear that you have that happens on stage to us that you will be singing and then i'll be thinking oh wait who am I meeting after the show? Where am I going? And then you're like, oh, wow, I should probably think about what's coming out of my mouth in front of 1,300 people. And that's not a good thing because not only is it not giving you your best performance, although I doubt anyone in the audience would notice the difference when, when, with a Broadway performer, but it, it, it steals away the joy from yourself mm. uh, of, of what you love doing. Um, I think that you kind of hit that brick wall and then you reassert yourself and renew yourself in, in the show. How I would, do you do it? Do you, is there, do you decide to put a motion in that you hadn't done before somewhere? No. Do you cha- no, you don't change no, something. No, you can't change. You know, like, everything changes on its own organically hmm. and you always have a director or a choreographer trying to keep you within the rails so that you don't go too far hmm. out of the boundaries that we've all created and it's a machine you know like there's 30 other people trying to do their job so you can't like make these you know choices that throws everybody else off it's going to be different every night just because it's different people on that stage. And you can't, like I was saying with, with Groff, like you can't recreate another person. You can't recreate exactly what you did the night before. It's impossible. So everything changes and adapts. 
But when you get to that point where you're really running into the brick wall, I just go over every scene before I go on, make myself present, remember what my intention is as the character, and um, just really commit to the storytelling. It's always about the story, and it's always about making sure you remember what part of the story you're telling at that moment. Mm. If you have a performance that's not your best performance, mm -hmm. maybe it's even whatever your standard of bad is. Sure. Which probably for most, most people wouldn't notice, but what do you do? Do you focus in on what went wrong, or at this point do you say, ah, it's gonna happen, we'll just move on? Well, what went wrong is usually not something that happened at the theater. It's, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Oh, I need to, you know, I wasn't much of an athlete growing up, but I think that being on Broadway is the closest to an athlete that I'll ever be mm. in that you really do have to maintain your stamina and your energy and your voice. And, you know, you can't stay in the loud bar too long. You, you, you realize that talking over a bar of people will set you back in the next day in a show. And so, um, and you have to warm up for a half an hour vocally. You have to stretch. You have to be prepared. And so if something goes wrong on stage, it's not usually anything more after hundreds of shows than you just weren't prepared with your stamina. So you go back and you figure out. Yeah. What did I do if you didn't know already? Yeah. And then you yeah. just Yeah, if something correct. if something goes wrong, you know, usually you know right away what you've done. <laughs> well Rory, this has been great. I appreciate uh, you coming out. Thanks for having and, me. Uh, I have one last story for you oh, that please, maybe yeah. you'll like. So I'm in Hamilton, right, for about a month, and I had just left Nerds, the musical playing mm -hmm. Bill Gates. So this is like May. Yeah. Uh, it's a, exactly it was in May. And um, Mark Zuckerberg comes to the show and brings a guest, Melinda Gates. <laughs> and they come back and they are wonderful. They are so nice. And I meet Melinda Gates and I'm thinking, I just played her husband in a, you know, almost a Broadway show. And I thought, should I say something to her? And then I said, I've got to. I've got to say something. Right. So I said, um, first of all, you're an amazing humanitarian. You are an astounding human being. I just did all this research on you because I was playing your husband in a musical that was gonna go to Broadway, Nerds. And she said, oh, we heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I died because I thought, that would never reach the radar of Bill Gates. You know, we kept saying, would you think they know oh, about this? Now I'm thinking, is that why the investor back I know, I know. <laughs> I highly doubt that that's what the situation no, was. No, yeah. But uh, she, she, I said, don't worry. It was, you know, all in humor with love. <laughs> I don't know if, she would, if he would feel that way. Um, but she said, well, I'm glad you're in this one. <laughs> <laughs> so any other moments like that? I mean, I'm sure all kinds yeah. of oh, yeah. people. Yeah, no, David Letterman came. Ticket, right? David Letterman came, and to me that was, there, were, there have been so many people that I could go through and name that it's, it's insane. But David Letterman coming to me was, I don't know, I, I hate to say it, but it like, was like Johnny Carson coming. That, to me, is who that man is. And... 
I just never thought I would have a chance to meet him, let alone have him see me in something, get to take a picture with him and, and tell me I did a good job. You know, there's just, there, he's sitting on your couch watching uh, a, a comic do his thing for your whole life and getting to have that moment with him was, it was pretty spectacular. And so I got to ask, since you mentioned the whole Mike Pence thing. Yeah. Was it weird to become a part of a national political conversation because of a president-elect's tweet? I mean, while, yeah. while continuing to do a show every night. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird. I was like, I think the president-elect has tweeted more about Hamilton than I have, <laughs> at least this week. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was strange. You know, I thought that um, that the vice president elect's response was just like really great, and that you know, and that if you were in that room, I think you would understand why we felt like we had to say something. The audience reaction was 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 negative. You know, it was it was like you have you to address the, something in the beginning yes. before yes. the musical yes. even started. Yes, yes, the, and it was. Eight days after the most contentious election ever, <laughs> so it was. It was. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, a, a very like good uh, thing that was something with some words were put behind something. You know that it was fear, and you know that's what. No matter who was going to win, there was going to be a lot of fear, anxiety, and I think that the best thing about the show is that it. It shows our country that we have been struggling for freedom and how to govern ourselves from the very beginning. And that is that it is messy, it is difficult, and that generations before us literally fought wars. We will get through anything and we can do it through, uh, through debate and, and civil discussion and and it's important to have it even when it's messy and, and art and art and art and and it's uh, art has always played a huge part of it and theater is a huge part of it and you know it's it's what we're here for um, but it it was a uh, it was a, a very uh, eye-opening experience in many ways but just another amazing thing that this show has has brought to to me um, and yeah it's it's just the all the different parts of of culture that Hamilton has been a part of in the last year and a half since it opened on Broadway is it's crazy well to quote Melinda Gates I'm, I'm glad you're in this one <laughs> <laughs> thank you John thank you Melinda <laughs> My thanks to Rory O'Malley. Rory's done playing King George on Broadway after nearly 400 performances, but he's not done with the role entirely. All I can say about that right now is watch the headlines, and he's moving back to California. Hint, hint. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on iTunes, Apple's podcast app, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. I tackle the biggest business and economic issues of the week with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next week's theme, 
for the podcast, The Consumer Electronics Show. I'm going to be there in Las Vegas interviewing some of the top tech CEOs, and I'm bringing you along. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thanks for lending an ear.